For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and an inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench, and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Anne She Spoke podcast. Today we spoke with South African mountaineer, Kathy O'Dowd. Kathy is the first woman in the world to climb Mount Everest from both sides. Her many high Himalayan expeditions provided her with extensive experience with individuals and teams facing stress, risk, and overwhelming challenge. Pre-COVID, she shared these insights with corporate audiences all over the world through story-driven expedition case studies. Post-COVID, she has had to shift her business online, like many of us, and is grateful that she lives in Andorra, where she can hike each day and run her business from her phone from the side of a mountain. We were so inspired by Kathy's story and know that you will be too. Here is our conversation with Kathy O'Dowd. Welcome, Kathy, to the podcast. We are so happy to have you today. I'm excited to be here. Kathy, let's get to know you a little bit. I would love for you to tell our audience who you are, what you do, and where you live, which we just were speaking about it before we started. I'm best known as a mountain climber and most famous for being the first woman in the world to have climbed Mount Everest from both sides. I'm South African and was, in fact, the first South African male or female, to climb Everest. And I live in Andorra, which is nowhere near South Africa. It's a tiny country in the Pyrenees Mountains in the south of Europe. Amazing. I want to know about the pre-pandemic Kathy O'Dowd life and then post-pandemic life. Well, that did change because I make 
my living as a motivational speaker, or, or possibly more correctly, an inspirational speaker. I'm not telling people to, you know, rah, 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 believe in themselves. I'm kind of sharing stories from my experiences in the mountains and then using those as illustrations about teamwork, goal achievement, project management. And of course, all of this was done face to face, big groups of people in small spaces, packed together elbow to elbow. Because <laughs> I mostly speak at big international sales, marketing, or executive leadership conferences. So yeah, I gave my last in-person talk on, I don't know, 8th or 9th of March, flew home, and I've been grounded ever since. I haven't spent this long without being on an airplane for over 20 years. Wow. Amazing. It is a bizarre, obviously, it's so understated to say that it's such a bizarre time, but I find it so fascinating to hear from different people and how the pandemic has changed. So how are you surviving? Like, what are you doing to keep yourself mentally, emotionally, socially fit? Actually, it's turned out to have considerable silver linings for me. So while I'm still a little itchy about not being able to travel quite as much as I'd like, so a couple of things turned out to be really valuable. I'd just chosen to live in a place I really like. I'd long since decided I will live in the mountains and I will put up with being a long way from an airport. And every time I flew for a client, it was a long, exhausting trip. And I'm very glad I made that choice because yeah, I've been essentially locked down in our little country for much of the last year. And it's lovely. There's so much to do here. Skiing and climbing and canyoneering and just all sorts of things. I'd never spent so much time really looking closely at the landscape that I've chosen to live in. And I discovered a great deal of kind of joy and value and unexpected charms close to home. So that's been fun. Then as far as the work goes, I mean, the first... A really important thing I've done is I'm self-employed. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I have really high savings. I think this is my third crisis. There was the dot-com crash, and then there was the 2008 financial crash. And yeah, really high savings and really low costs. So initially, it was fine. I thought it would blow over. Then after about a month of sort of sulking and spending it language learning, I thought, okay. I'm going to have to face up to the new world order. And yeah, so right now I'm sitting in a studio I built in my spare bedroom. Professional camera, microphone, professional lighting, upgraded my computer system, started giving my inspirational talks online. And it's great. It's going really well. Yeah, I think now that we're a year into this, we've all pretty much adapted to some degree to this new normal. And I think because of that, the world has changed forever. And I think so many of us now are on-camera personalities who maybe never expected to be that prior to the pandemic. But, you know, I just want to go back a little bit, Kathy, because I don't think we can have this episode with you without hearing the story of your journey climbing Mount Everest multiple times. And what led you, what happened to you in your youth that led you to aspire to become a mountain climber? I'm not entirely sure. I grew up in Johannesburg in South Africa, big city, huge grass plain, not a mountain in sight, suburban parents who didn't do any of this. Quite why I like mountains, I don't know. 
I discovered them through sort of summer camps when I was a teenager. As soon as I got to university, I took up rock climbing, having been terrible at sort of ladies' team sport at school. I went to a ladies' school. I hated that. I hated team sport. I hated ball sports. It was such a revelation to find a physical activity I was good at, which was rock climbing. Because it's not competitive. It's deeply personal. It's just yourself in a wild, beautiful place, seeing whether you can do something a little more difficult than what you did last time. I liked all of that. And then I was just curious. What would it be like to climb higher, go colder, go further? And I started trying to find ways to get onto expeditions just to see what it would be like. Although I've ended up being famous for Everest, I never aimed to climb Everest. Never. I just wanted to go to the Himalaya. You know, in a time when there were no commercial expeditions, you couldn't buy a place on a team the way you can now. You had to kind of find a team that would let you join. And there were so few out of South Africa. So when the first South African Everest expedition was being sort of covered in the media, I just looked at this thing longingly, not because it was Everest, because there's a South African team going to the Himalaya and nobody asked me because I'm not enough of somebody. And then the sponsoring newspaper decided to run a competition. They called it a selection, but honestly, it was a competition to find a woman to join the team. And it was really early reality television, and it was kind of a terrible way to select someone to join a climbing team. And the men on the team who were on there because of their CVs were not impressed. So, you know, the dynamic of joining a team that way was awful. And I went for it anyway. And how old were you then? I was 26 when I saw the article in the newspaper. And what they, were, what they did, they said, apply for this thing. A shortlist of six women will go and climb Kilimanjaro as a kind of test expedition. And of course, there'll be a camera crew. And I figured I could probably make the shortlist because there were so few women with any experience. And then I'd get a free trip to Kilimanjaro. So how, how bad can that be? And I, I made it and I was the one invited to join the Everest team. Throughout this process, I just want to know what was going through your mind. Were you thinking just in the space of, I love the mountains, I love nature, I love to challenge myself physically? Or was there other stuff going on for you? Like, do you identify as ambitious? Probably not. Although I wouldn't say that's the same as lacking ambition, but I don't think it's my driving raison d'etre in life. I identify myself as being curious. So I wanted to go to the Himalaya and then I wanted to try and get onto the Everest team just to see what I could make of the opportunity. So I didn't sit there imagining myself on the summit of Everest. That just seemed impossibly kind of far away, just over unrealistic. What I did see was a fascinating path to somewhere. And I didn't know exactly where it was going to lead me, but I had the confidence to think, I can go, I can learn, I can gain experience, I will come out of the other side with stuff that matters to me, whether I get to the top of Everest or not. And I've always felt about that way about projects. As long as there's something interesting to learn by taking part, that's what matters. And whether we succeed or not, and whether halfway through the project I discover 
unexpected new opportunities have arrived and I'm about to pivot and pursue one of them instead. All of that is fine. It's part of the journey. Can you share with us some of your stories about what you learned with teamwork? So as we were sharing with you, a lot of our listeners are business owners and are, you know, either have a team or in the process of building a team, many of them. I love some of yours about that they can be the, the greatest source of frustration, you know, and I just, do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. So when I first started as an inspirational speaker, it was based on the 15 minutes of fame. You know, I just become the first South African to climb Everest. I, I had this extraordinary media backstory because of the, the competition and the only woman on the team and all of this. But I was always kind of uncomfortable just talking about, look at me climbing a mountain, you know, isn't that inspiring? I'm more comfortable talking about the dynamic of the team. And the t- dynamic of the team was terrible. It was absolutely awful. The infighting, the backbiting, the size of the egos. We ended up with three male team members walking out before we even got to base camp. It's a long, complicated story. But it meant I had this wealth of kind of traumatic material to work with. And I set out to try and structure my speeches around that, the idea of the formation of a team. At the time, there was a cycle of team development forming, storming, norming, performing. And I kind of used that as the background. So I think what I got out of it was this strong sense. So much of what happens on a mountain is actually out of your control. This is nature. It's so much bigger than we are. You know, the storms roll in. There's nothing you can do about it. The wind starts howling. The snow starts dumping. Yeah, you can't stop any of it. But it also turned out that that wasn't really the problem. You can normally work your way around it. The problem was the teams. These teams would come together with these ambitious, sort of A-type, driven, determined people, much more inclined to compete with each other rather than actually collaborate together for a greater goal. And they almost always caused their own failure. And the teams that succeeded weren't always the most experienced. They were the ones where the team members pulled together the most effective. And that fascinated me. I started into the the corporate space, digging into that. What are the behaviors that sync teams and competition within the team? I know some companies love this and they put put their salespeople against each other. Uh, It works for you maybe, but I haven't seen it work. I want team players. I want people who say we're stronger together than we are individually, that we share a goal and we're all moving towards it. So that's being really important. The other thing that's come out of it, I think that's really interesting is the way you motivate yourself. And again, it's yourself individually, it's the team that you're part of. And I think people overemphasize the kind of admirable motivation where you're digging deep and being resilient and, you know, winners never quit and all of this stuff. But God, most of us just can't be that resilient 24-7. We get tired and demoralized and uncertain. And teams are better when people have the space to be able to say, today is not my day. You know, I'm not on an upcycle here. Help me through this, everybody else. And I'll just slog along at the back, you know, doing what I need to do. But I'm not going to be the leader today. And then you can come back in a couple of days later when you've got your mojo back and go, okay, now is my day. Now I've got great things to contribute. If you allow people 
to have good days and bad days and carry each other. That's important. Humor's important too. <laughs> when everybody's just catatonic with stress, it really helps if somebody can just make you all laugh and kind of break the tension. Kathy, I'm curious to hear about a time in your career where you had a great amount of fear and you worked through it. Can you share a specific example for our listeners? Yes, well, that might not be this quite what people would expect. So, yeah, I'm not going to talk about um, some life and death moment on the mountain. Those have always just felt like things that we could or I could work through. So what has been much more impactful, but also deeply traumatic when it was happening, was actually having to work through major public failure. And I think this is particularly something that can hold women back. We tend to be a little more perfectionist. We tend to be a little more people-pleasing. I mean, I was one of those, middle-class girl, high academic achiever. My parents were proud of me. And I liked it that way, which meant I didn't choose things where I thought I might fail. So that would kind of go against my achiever persona. Although we're discussing this Everest expedition as if it was a great success, there was the other side. In some ways, it was an utter failure. At the beginning, we had this massive team infighting, which led to huge media coverage, because there's nothing the media like more than, you know, infighting within, within a group. And then at the end of the expedition, after we reached the summit, one of the team members was killed on the way down. So, you know, that is a massive failure. Nobody goes on an expedition thinking they're not going to all come home alive. We know their risks, but obviously the point is you're supposed to be able to manage the risks. So this was back in a small country with not much mountaineering history. No one had ever seen a sort of event quite like this before. Every single person in South Africa had an opinion, and a lot of them were negative, and they were all over the media. And I'd never faced public failure and public criticism at that level. It was horrible, but it was really useful because I survived. The world goes on. You know, in the middle of the wreckage, there were plenty of opportunities. There was a book to be written, there were corporate speeches to be given, sponsors for further expeditions. I stepped away at that point from ever having a real job and have never gone back. A huge opportunity in the wreckage. And also a somewhat battered confidence for myself by having slogged through that and come out the other side. It's okay. So although I still don't entirely like failing, I think I'm a lot less held back by the fear of failure. And not more prepared to say I'll try something. And even if it doesn't work out, as long as I learned something by taking part, that was worth it. Yeah, we often work with our clients and we talk about this kind of thing about failing and like, what if you tried something and you failed and the worst thing that's going to happen is an emotion, right? And that's exactly what you described. Like I survived it. I felt this and it was horrible, but then I, I'm okay, right? Like I'm okay. Like what are people holding themselves back from simply because they're afraid of feeling something on the other end, right? And that, it makes me really sad because it's like, I can feel embarrassment. I'm okay with a little bit of shame. I'll get through it. So easy to say right now, but it's harder when you're facing it. But if that's all it is, it's all it is. I, I think it's so important. I see a lot of people kind of building successful achievements. As, and yes, that's one way of building your reputation and building your confidence. 
But I also see people then taking shortcuts. So in the modern world where you can buy a place on a guided expedition, people are, you know, buying dramatic, beautiful mountains that gives them a wonderful Instagram photo from the summit. But the guide did all the work. So they haven't actually learned an enormous amount, even though, you know, on the CV, yes, I conquered X mountain. I really try and push younger climbers, don't buy mountains on those commercial trips, go and buy training courses, build skills, and then build experiences. And some of those experiences should absolutely be moments where you looked at a mountain and said, this isn't working, we're going to get ourselves out, we're going to back off, but we're going to back off sensibly and safely and carefully and effectively. Now that's confidence building. Mm-hmm. And you know, I took my skills, I used them in an unexpected environment, And I extricated myself and my team safely out of a difficult moment. And there's a lot of value in that. You don't just need to tick out the I conquered ABC. And photographed it all for Instagram. Yeah. I'm curious, Kathy, what advice you have for those that are just starting out in something in a career or in an adventure. We have a lot of listeners who are early on in entrepreneurship, and that's obviously your story as well. So you have this, you know, the, the, the quick story for you is that you're this amazing mountain climber, but you're obviously also a successful entrepreneur. You've been able to leverage your mountain climbing career into entrepreneurship. And I'm curious what advice you have for someone who's just starting out as an entrepreneur. And is there anything that you would do differently if you were starting out today? Well, I think in terms of advice, again, I'm not sure this is how everyone thinks about it, but I think it's almost impossible to stand at your starting line and know where you can be in 20 years' time and even what the world's going to look like in 20 years' time. We've seen so much change in our adult lives. And I think it's almost limiting to believe you can plot out a path. I'm a big believer in pursuing opportunity. Yes, you need to be in the space, you need to be working hard, you need to be moving forward. You don't find opportunity sitting on the sofa, you don't find opportunity if you've got no plan at all and therefore you're going around in circles. But having chosen a direction, set some goals, moving yourself forward, be really flexible about unexpected opportunities, new avenues you haven't thought about before, Stumbling into something that turns out to suit your skills or your passions or your, your strengths more, more than you anticipated. And you know, let's be utterly honest. I'm in the space because I'm a good mountain climber and I tried hard and all sorts of things. And I got lucky. You know, that big media break, that huge, traumatic, bizarre Everest expedition, being the woman who got on the team and then having the expedition kind of explode into drama in a way that got us huge media coverage. You can't arrange that beforehand. So I'm afraid the the sad side of this truth is some people will work very, very hard and not get much in the way of lucky breaks. The upside is if you're in the game, you're working hard, cleverly focused, moving yourself forward and keeping an eye out for opportunity. If that lucky break comes away, you need to recognize it and then work it. Sometimes we just let them slide past us. And years later, you think, God, I could have done A, B and C with that. And somehow I didn't. Think of it at the time. So if you get luck, exploit the hell out of it. I wish I'd taken myself more seriously at a younger age. I always felt a little tentative. 
particularly because I was a young woman trying to do things in a very male-dominated space and coming out of what, frankly, was a fairly patriarchal country. You know, South Africa was really one of the world leaders in you know, sexual equality or anything like that. And so I'd absorbed a lot of that without even realizing it. I wouldn't have said that as a young woman, but looking back, I had. And I was always somewhat tentative and always slightly apologetic and always a little too inclined to say, oh, I, I just got here by being lucky as against I got here by you know, trying hard. And I wish I'd been just a little more pushy, maybe, a little more ambitious, a little everything from physical training for the mountain climbing to stepping out into the business space and demanding more when I started out. And I look at a couple of lucky breaks and where I let them slip, slide by for lack of time or lack of confidence. Yeah. I mean, I, I made a lot out of some of them, but there are others that I know that that ship came my way and now it sailed and I won't get it back. And so do you feel like today, like where you are today and your goals moving forward, can you push yourself and take your, like, did you learn from what you wish you were in the 20s? And can you apply that to your life today? Yes. But again, one of the sides to it that matters to me has been saying that although I'm motivated and ambitious. I also have no interest in certain of the big success markers of our society. So as a motivational speaker or as a professional speaker, oh, there are plenty of them in the million dollar club and they're all, they're all, they love their figures. How many speeches did you give this year? How many thousands of people did you speak to? How many tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars did you bank? I'm not running a business. I'm running a lifestyle. I'm interested in how many days I spent on skis, how many days I spent in the mountains. So I work hard. I take it seriously. But I am not interested in boasting about 80-hour work weeks. It's much more important to me that I have this balance and that I spend half my year in the mountains, doing the adventures that I'm interested in. And that has involved, to some extent, walking away from sort of our pursuit of, of monetary success. But I've had the pressure from the other side. You know, the mountain climbing community would say that they're pretty anti-capitalist and anti-money, and it's all about being deep in the mountains at one with the challenge. And there are plenty of them who will take every penny they earn and spend all of it on the next expedition. And if you aren't doing that, you know, you're selling out to the man. I like having a house where I've paid off the mortgage. I like having decent health insurance and a respectable investment portfolio for my old age. I've seen a lot of driven mountain climbers end up very poor and in bad health because of injuries. And it's not a good look as you get older. So I had to kind of push back against that side of it as well. Knowing your own value. Knowing what for you success looks like, even if that means turning away from things your family or your culture or your nationality value, that's useful. You know, as I listen to you talk, it reminds me of like something that Jenny and I talk a lot about when we run our business. And that is this balance of like feminine and masculine energy. And you also entered a world that is like 
push, you know, bro culture, hustle culture, ego driven, numbers driven, success, money, you know, all of that. And that you are just describing yourself coming into this, you know, into that world, but bringing your feminine energy and approaching it in a way that just with a little bit of a balancing force, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's actually really beautiful to listen to you speak, because that's exactly I think what's happening there. And we don't have to conform to that, right? Obviously, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like I'm sure many of those climbers who are, you know, million dollar speakers, they're probably lacking, I would get a bit of happiness and balance that you have found and are probably like, oof, maybe she's onto something there. I think people are different. So I do think some people are just really ambitious, really goal driven. Hopefully they're happy with all their summits and all, all their dollars and all their speeches. And hopefully, of course, when all of that dwindles, as comes with age, you know, eventually you won't be earning that much money. Eventually you won't have thousands of people in your audiences to listen to you. You know, eventually you'll just be another retired person in the world. You've got to be comfortable with yourself when that moment comes and it's just you quietly living, you know, the last decades of your life. Yeah, I do think I've enjoyed being in male spaces. I like the energy and ambition men. I sometimes find all women's groups, I'm thinking mostly in mountain sports, so busy being supportive that nobody's actually getting on with it. (laughs) Only sometimes, I'm not a massive generalization, but I do quite like the energy and drive of men. I like mixed teams. But on the other hand, I've also got thoroughly tired sometimes of the just the goal obsession of some men and the aggressiveness of it. And you know, in mountains, you see people crumbling under stress. And it's often emotional stress as much as it's not so much the physical difficulty of the mountain. It's the, the overall package of mental, emotional and physical difficulty. And, you know, I burst into tears halfway up mountains. And frankly, it's great because it takes about five minutes. You feel much better afterwards. And you haven't actually harmed anybody else. I've seen a fist fight on the side of Everest. Stressed men getting aggressive. Now, that does harm people. So I think there's a lot to be said for leaning into feminine qualities, even when you're busy doing things that come across as sort of masculine-style achievement. Mm-hmm. Yep. 100% agree. All right, Jenny, do you ready for join hustle? Yes. So Kathy, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to share something that's bringing them joy in this very moment and a tool that can help our listeners hustle in their career or business. Right now, given the world we're in, an intense focus on what's available to me close to home. When we were rarely locked down and we could only walk for two kilometers outside the house every second day, I was down to looking at at every flower because it was springtime, every flower, every tree, watching how each day it changed. Now I've got a little bit more space discovering mountains, valleys, peaks, adventures that I just overlooked because I was so busy with the big picture stuff. So even when the world does feel like it's shrunk, perhaps for all of us, there's a lot close to home we're overlooking. I dive into that. The hustle one, that's interesting because I thought about that. And I thought, oh God, my life is and my business is so kind of simplified and streamlined because I like it that way and it's less complex. I found it quite hard. And I hope this isn't, isn't a disappointing answer, but I thought actually in the end, the most useful thing I use to hustle is the iPhone. 
because I want to climb mountains and I want to be available to my clients. So I've got my whole little home office set up closely tied into my phone so that everything's available to be on my phone. And the phone is the office and the office gets slipped in the pocket of my pants. It's winter, so I'm doing ski mountaineering. And the office goes into the pocket of my ski pants. And this morning, the office climbed a thousand vertical meters onto a summit, climbed along a ridge, skied off down the mountain. The office had a good day. <laughs> and I can stop. And just while I'm waiting for my companions, I can have a quick look. I can check the email, their data inquiries. My calendar is all linked in. All my client information is linked in. And in, in the space of waiting for five minutes, I send a quick answer to a couple of inquiries about dates or availability or fees or, or tech. And then I can continue with the adventure. And that's been really helpful in letting me get the best out of my life in the mountains and my business. I think you've just made a lot of people very jealous right <laughs> yes, now, including the say. two of us. So we're just going <laughs> to leave it at that. I think what an aspirational lifestyle, Kathy. Thank you so much for sharing your story and inspiring us and our listeners along the way. What a beautiful life you've created for yourself. Thank you. I have to say, I do enjoy doing it. So if people want to learn more about you, where can they find information? So the website is simply my name, kathyodow.com. That's mostly about my speaking. The place for my day-to-day adventures, so it features mountains, some speaking, and the fluffy cat. That's Instagram, at kathyodowd. Or you're welcome to find me on Facebook, where I run a pretty open Facebook. Thank you so much for the time today. Loved, loved, loved talking with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba teacher to sign up. It's totally free.